Thank you, praise team. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to start at the end of Galatians chapter 5 this morning. Galatians chapter 5. We're uh, closing out our little series here on the church. And uh, if you remember, we've talked about... Um, Got to make room to preach here. Uh, we, we've talked about um, the church in four different aspects. We've, we talked about the things that we hold in common on the first week, things like our doctrinal statement, our understanding of Scripture, things like that. Then the second week, we talked about unity, and we talked about how you cannot have unity without things in common, right? Uh, for example, in the United States of America, we could talk about being unified as a country, but in order to be unified, we have to have some sort of similar vision or values for this country, and while those things are diverging, it's really hard to have unity, and that's kind of what we're seeing right now, but to have unity in a church, you have to have a common set of, of beliefs, and, uh, and that's what we have here at Delaware Bible Church. Then last week, we talked about communication, just very practically diving into the four rules of communication, and we learned that, boy, things would be a whole lot better in the church if we just practice those things consistently, uh, being honest, keeping current, attacking the problem, not the person, and choosing to act and not react. Uh, you put those things into practice, and, and boy, things do tend to get a lot better and more productive. But today, we're going to be talking about uh, our last thing that we're going to be talking about. is kind of illustrated in this picture right here. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard the the Willie Nelson song, popular Willie Nelson song, you pick the fine time to leave me loose wheel. <laughs> Is that not a... Okay, so uh, can we... If you see what's going on in the picture, the car in the front, the race car in the front has lost a wheel, and uh, that wheel is now loose and rolling down the track. And can we agree that this is bad, not only for the guy in the front race car, but everybody else around him, because when the, those those uh, race wheels have a lot of weight, they have a lot of momentum when it's rolling down the track, and, you know, I've seen those things jump up into the crowd, spectators, I've seen them roll down pit road and hurt people, uh, or hit another car and do great damage. It's not good to be disconnected, and that's what we're going to be talking about in the church today. Uh, we're going to be talking about the following. There, there is, within the church, uh, a number of us, you, um, who find themselves oftentimes disconnected. What do I mean by that? Does that mean that you, you missed a bulletin announcement last week? No, that's not what I'm talking about. It means that you're not engaged in real meaningful relationships here in the church. What I mean by real meaningful relationships can really be talked about from Hebrews 10, 25 and 26, right? Let us consider how to Stir one another up to love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but all the more as you see the day approaching. In order for us to have meaningful relationships in the church, we have to be able to speak truth, to, to challenge other people to love and good deeds. We have to put ourselves in a position to be challenged by others. That's kind of, you know, just to cut to the chase, uh, that's what being connected is all about. It's very important that we're connected. Uh, Mark Howell, who's kind of a guru of small groups, he says it this way, unconnected people are always one tough thing away from never being at your church again. And I don't think Mark Howell is talking, I don't think Mark Howell is all that concerned with how big or small any particular church is. That's not the point. 
The point is, is that you're, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to be part of a Christian community called the church. And if a person is unconnected, they can have one bad circumstance. Perhaps their marriage goes sour. That perhaps they, uh, one of their kids uh, gets themselves into trouble. Or perhaps they lose their job or things are just rough at work. And they conclude, you know what? This Christianity thing doesn't work and I'm leaving. I'm just going to go do church from home watching Joel Osteen. I don't recommend that. I don't believe what Joel Osteen preaches is anything resembling the gospel. But uh, some folks will just leave, you know, and, and not come back. We want you to be connected here at Delaware Bible Church uh, or be connected to the local church of which you are part. And so that's really our question today. How do you know if you are connected at Delaware Bible Church? Now, I'm not talking about connected like the mafia, okay? So don't get that in your head. We're talking about that you're in meaningful relationships with others here at Delaware Bible Church. How do you know that? In the book of 1 Peter, not, don't turn there or anything, I'm just, I'm just talking. Peter does something very interesting to open up his book. He goes back into the Old Testament and he brings forward some imagery from the Old Testament and applies that imagery to the church. And he talks about, for example, how we are now, the church is a royal priesthood or a kingdom of priests, right? Uh, but he also talks about the church as being a, a kind of a new temple. Remember, in the book of Exodus, God instructed the people of Israel to build a tabernacle. That was kind of a traveling worship site where God would manifest his presence in the Holy of Holies. Later that Tabernacle became a permanent fixture in Jerusalem called the temple. And again, God would manifest his presence in the Holy of Holies. Well, all that's done now, but in, in 1 Peter, Peter writes that we are now, we, the church, are now a temple of living stones, right? And we, of course, know from reading God's word that the Holy Spirit has manifested himself in our lives. And that's a very important analogy. That's a very important concept to get through our heads. We are, we are uh, like living stones. Now, this is, this is obviously a funny example. This is, in Spain, they build these human towers for contests and stuff, but it kind of paints a little bit of a picture of what a living stone would look like. This building, our church building, is made of concrete blocks, wood, metal, other materials. And if I were to go out and get a battering ram and bash a hole into the side of this building, that hole would remain until somebody came and fixed it. Why? Because they're dead. It's dead material that this building is made out of. There's nothing living about it. It's dead. The walls of this building are made out of dead material. But if, for example, I were to climb up this human tower and I were to break someone's grip, assuming that the tower doesn't collapse, they would just the person that lost the grip would reestablish the grip and the person that was grabbed on too would kind of maybe lean over in their direction. It's a living tower, right? When we see somebody in the church who is failing, who is falling, and the brick is falling out of place, that living stone is falling away, we are also living stones and can reach out and grab it and help it back into place. It's just kind of an interesting analogy about connection. So let's talk about that. We're going to talk about that from the end of Galatians, Galatians chapter 5, verse 25, all the way to Galatians chapter 6, verse 5. Let's talk about what it means to be connected. The first thing we're going to talk about today is 
in relationship to other believers, you must adopt the right mindset. Look at verses 525-26. It says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. The first thing that we want to talk about is remaining on God's path. Remaining on God's path. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Now, I don't know if you've ever given this any thought. Um, and I don't know if you've, you observe what's going on in the culture today, but, uh, and I even had somebody come up to me after first service and say, yes, this is absolutely true. I just had a, I had a, a coffee with a person that you were talking about this morning. There are an increasing number of people out there who will say things like this. I'm not a Christian, but I'm a spiritual person. And this lady that was talking to me said, I had coffee with a person just like that. What does it mean to be a spiritual person? Have you ever given that any thought? When somebody says that, what are they talking about? I mean, words have meaning and they correspond to reality or should. I know that doesn't happen often in the news today, but it does. It's supposed, words are supposed to correspond to reality. So this is the definition I have come up with, and I'm not saying that I'm God's gift to definitions, but um, best I can discern, this is what it means to be a spiritual person. A spiritual person is a person who adopts the identity, mission, and beliefs of another as their own, and then lives those out. A spiritual person is a person who adopts the identity, mission, and beliefs of another as your own, and then lives them out. So obviously, in the context that we're in this morning, we have adopted our identity, we have placed our identity in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what Christians are. We, we've placed our identity in that. We've adopted his mission to love God, to love others, and make disciples. We've adopted that mission as our own, or at least we should have, adopted that mission as our own and the beliefs that we hold when we ask ourselves the question in this in any given circumstance what is the right thing to do and what is the wrong thing to do i hope that you like me are looking to god's word to discern what that is because god in his word has given us about three things things that we he asks he tells us not to do things that he commands us to do, and then that third category of, of preference, right? Things that are neither right or wrong, but things that, you know, I'm, my favorite, we, we may disagree on some things, but what, one thing we're commanded not to do is to, not to fight over preference items, right? So we've got the, what we're absolutely not supposed to do, what we are supposed to do, and then we've got this third category called preference. And so we're supposed to walk this path. I put this picture up here. I don't know if you can see it real well, but it's a picture of a footbridge that goes across kind of what looks like a cold, icy river that's between two rocky, you know, steep, rocky uh, sections of, of, of the earth. And I put this up here to say that this path that we're walking is a path that we must walk carefully recognizing that if we get off that path to the right or to the left, there's going to be trouble. Now, why do I say that? Why do I say there's going to be trouble? 
<clears throat> let me first remind you, this was in the, your outline, what Ezra 7.10 says. It says this, this is the Old Testament, right? Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, so he studied it for himself, and to do it, so he practiced it in his life, and then to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. That's the Lord's statutes and rules in Israel. And this is a really good picture of, I think, of what a complete Christian life kind of looks like. We set our hearts, right? In the Old Testament, the heart was the, the seat of your mind, your will, and your emotion. Mind, will, and emotion. It's kind of like who we are. You set your whole self to the study of God's Word, then you practice it in your life, and then you turn around and teach others. That's kind of a fully orbed picture, I think, of what's going on here. But why, why would we be so concerned with keeping in step with the Spirit, the, the Holy Spirit, keeping in step with God? I did a little bit of thinking about this, and um, you may or may not agree with what I'm about to say, but I've got up here on the screen a question, and the question is, what does life consist of? And I'm not talking about the blood pumping through your veins and the arteries and the nerve endings. And I'm not talking about our biological self. I'm talking about the stuff of life that occupies our thoughts like every day. And this is not an exhaustive list, but this is a decent list. Our relationship with God, our family, our spouses, our children, parents, grandparents, our relationships with others, time, the time that we spend, how we spend it, our health, our relative, you know, how well our body functions, our talents, the, 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 the unique way that God has made you as an individual, you, the things that you're gifted at naturally, your talents, uh, your productivity, your, your ability to apply those talents over time to get things done, right? Your reputation. I mean, let's face it. If you drink enough alcohol, eventually you'll become known as an alcoholic by, by your reputation. You do the, the action long enough. If you steal enough stuff, you'll, be known as a, you'll become known in the community as a thief. If you tell enough lies, you will become known in the community as a liar. And your reputation can really increase or decrease what you can do in this world. And I don't even know if number nine needs to be there, but location just because the realtors always tell me it's all about location, location, location. Somebody just told me uh, on the way out of first service that they said goodbye, they're going to Florida for the winter. And I said, take me with you. And they said, no, that's okay. I'm going to watch your sermons live stream by the pool in the 70 degree temperature in January. That wasn't very nice. I just want to say that. That wasn't very nice. God bless you for being able to do that. Anyway, these are the things that make up life. Now, here's my, here's my statement. I, I'm inviting you to think with me today, this morning. Which of these things would be detrimentally affected by not following God's word? Which of these things would be positively impacted by following God's word? You see, this is especially for you young people out there. There's this, there's this, uh, this, this lie that's out there in the public 
And the lie is, is that if you live the Christian life, Christian, the Christian life is all about not having any fun and all about just keeping a, a set of rules and regulations. And, and I can't, I want to tell you, it's nothing like that at all. Yeah, there's rules. But if you want to have, I, I would argue this morning that if you want to have the maximum amount of freedom in this life, then you're going to have a really good relationship with God because you're going to know, right? As, as we all do, that if you have a good relationship with, your relationship with God is, is paramount to having a good life. Knowing, for example, experiencing the joy of knowing that your sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ, that um, you're in this, the ultimate excellent position each day that you rise out of your bed. You're in a position of, if the Lord takes me home today, I'm going to be with him forever in, in heaven. I win. If the Lord lets me live all throughout the day, I get to do fruitful ministry for him. Another win. We're in the ultimate win-win situation. And that's what a good relationship with God, meditating on his word, uh, thinking about who he is and all the things that he's done for us and his awesome character, his grace and mercy. That's one of the things that's amazing about this life if you really grab onto that. If you have a great family life, a good relationship with your parents, a good relationship with your siblings, a good relationship with your spouse, life is much better. And I would argue that your relationship with your family, your relationship with others, can be greatly enhanced by following the four rules of communication that I talked about last week. Making good use of your time. Boy, when you've had a good day and you've made wise use of your time, to me, that feels really good, right? feels really good. On the other hand, if I've squandered the day, I feel lousy. Anyway, you get the idea. If we, if, again, if we live according to God's word, we don't abuse things like uh, alcohol and substances and all these things, that can really have a good impact on our health. And so I, I would argue this morning, and again, especially for you young folks, that... Um, while there's a lot of chatter out there in the culture about how Christianity is so, blah, you know, it's, God just wants to take away all your fun, I would argue the exact opposite is true, that the way of Jesus Christ is actually the way to live as the most free human being that you can possibly be. Now, I know that's counterintuitive a little bit, but, but track with me just one more minute. When I go outside in the mornings, to exercise, to take a little jog around the neighborhood, it hurts. I'm old. And, you know, my knees start t talking to me going, hey, you know, it'd be a good idea for you to stop now, you know. And I'm getting to the age where one of my hips is starting to talk to me a little bit. I don't know. What is that about? I'm, I'm only 49. But, uh, <clears throat> but the, after having exercised and having a good, a good, you know, 45-minute workout, I feel great for the rest of the day. I sleep better at night, and my blood pressure does really good things over the long haul. What I'm talking about is that even psychologists, even guys like Jordan Peterson talk about how we need to practice optimum deprivation, right? We need to sacrifice a little bit in the short term to get really amazing effects in the longer term. One time, I, I really, I really enjoy sugar, like a lot, like it's, it's an addiction. I'm not kidding. Just ask my wife; she'll tell you. But one time, uh, we decided to to take a break from sugar for a good long time, and that was hard. But um, I noticed that everything, like that's 
like natural, like fruits, tasted so much better after some days away from processed sugar. And I just thought, oh, that's really kind of incredible. I still eat sugar, but, uh, but what if I didn't? That would be really cool. No, the point I'm trying to get at is that there is, in the moment, always this thing that the flesh wants to do. But if we will reason in our minds that God's way is better, as we talked about last week, right? Ephesians 4.23, be renewed in the thinking of your mind. If we will reason in our minds that God's way is better and we will really fully understand that God really does want us to have an abundant life, and what that's going to mean is saying no to some temporary pleasure in exchange for some long-term benefits, that we will understand what it means to live by the Spirit and stay and stay and keep in step with the Spirit. Second Corinthians three seventeen says, "Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom." This is an important concept to remember. And again, we have to adopt a mindset that we're going to keep our lives on that path, keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Now, this text also says, uh, verse 26 says, that we are, one of the mindsets that we should adopt is to not try to be better than others. There is a pervasive attitude in the church, not this church, but in the church in general, probably this church too, that when a person diligently starts trying to follow Jesus Christ and they try, to, they try to get themselves and keep themselves on that path, we're sick people. We look at anybody who's not doing as well as us and we say, ha-ha, at least I'm better than them. See what this text says. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another. Brothers and sisters, It's only by God's grace that we have the forgiveness of our sins in Jesus Christ. We didn't do that. It's only by the grace of God that we have his word. We didn't produce that. It's only by the grace of God that the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in our life to convict us of our sin and help us to stay on that path. We didn't do that. So when we simply begin to submit our lives to God and live as he asks us to live, To become conceited is foolishness, and it also provokes others in the body. So let us not think too highly of ourselves, but adopt the humility that that is right in the circumstance. Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. This is going to come back in a minute to be important. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Listen, think about this. You're the Apostle Paul. Just put yourself in Paul's shoes for just a minute. Before he knew Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, he was a very devout Pharisee. Studied hard to memorize, I'm sure, huge swaths of the Old Testament. Was a very learned man in the Old Testament law and practiced and became the top of his class. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? Then he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and it changed his life. And then he switched his allegiance from studying the Old Testament law to following and pursuing Jesus Christ in light of the Old Testament law for sure, but following Jesus Christ. And then Paul starts ministering to the church at Corinth. 
I don't know if you know anything about the church in Corinth, but they had problems. Big moral failure problems, like a man sleeps with his father's wife, that kind of stuff. Problems. Thankfully, thankful, <laughs> thankfully, Paul did not say to himself when he arrived at Corinth or was ministering at Corinth, he didn't get there and see all of the depravity that was going on and say, you know what? I don't want to get any of this on me. I'll see you guys later. Read your Bibles. I'm out. He patiently worked with them and discipled them and helped them to grow and change and become more like Christ. And many were rescued from their sin in his doing that. So it's important for us not to become conceited. It's also for us important for us to not to be jealous of one another. This is another dynamic that plays itself out in the church. Someone starts living for the Lord. They start getting some success. They start maybe even, you know, being put into a place of leadership in the church. And then people say, ah, I, how, did, how did that person get there? Uh, they, they're also guilty of this, that, and the other thing, you know, whatever. And uh, that is not the attitude that we are to adopt. James 3.16 says this, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist... And James doesn't really pull any punches here. There will be disorder in every vile practice. So we've got to get our mindset right, right? We have to, we have to put ourselves on that path, that bridge that's in the image, put our, of walking carefully with the Lord, keeping in step with the Spirit, avoiding the tendency to become conceited on the one hand or jealous on the other. That's the right attitude, or I'm sorry, the right mindset to have. The second thing that, that this text brings out, and this is in chapter 6, verse 1, is in relationship to other believers, we have to adopt the right attitude. Now here, I probably should have picked a different word, if I'm being honest with you, because I'm not talking about the attitude in your mind. I'm talking about the, the orientation of your life, kind of the position that you've placed yourself in, the right attitude, kind of like an air, think of an aircraft getting in the right attitude to land on the runway, Right? Look at what it says in chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Here is, the, here is a couple of things about the attitude that you should adopt. First of all, a readiness to restore. A readiness to restore. We talked about what it means to be spiritual earlier. Let's talk about this. The spiritual life is loving God, loving others, and making disciples of Jesus Christ. It's first learning the joy of practicing what the Word of God teaches, learning what it says, learning how to practice it, and learning the joy of being able to influence and teach others to do the same. Matthew uh, when, when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment in the law? He said this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Uh, side note, that's everything that you've got, right? This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So that's, you know, in order for us to be ready to restore, we first have to be practicing ourselves, Right? But then secondly, and, and this is maybe a new concept, maybe a newish, newer concept to you. Maybe this is not something you thought about. 
But in terms of the attitude, the configuration of your life, do you have anything in your life like strategic margin? Let me explain that to you. Strategic margin. This is under the heading of readiness to restore. I've been talking to some folks. I've been trying to go to the next level in terms of managing my time. And so I've been talking to some folks that are better at it than I am. And I was talking to a lady on the phone. And she said that every day on her, on her daily uh, calendar, she has two hours of margin. You know what margin is, right? You know, you go, to the you go to the store, you buy school paper for your kid for school to start, and the school paper has lines on it, but then it also has a red line down the left-hand side, and on the other side of that red, red line, there's like an inch or an inch and a half of margin. It's the extra that you don't typically write on, but nerds like me write in the margin sometimes. It's the extra, right? Anyway, this lady says to me that she's got about two hours of margin built into her day, and she uses that margin every day. I said, for what? She says, well, do you ever get a phone call that demands your attention right now? And I said, I get a phone call like that every dang day. She said, do you ever have somebody walk into your office and say, I need you to do something, and I need you to do it like it's time sensitive, I need it now? And I say, I have that happen to me nearly every day. She said, me too. So I just figured out that I need to build about two hours into my day every day for that and I use it up pretty much every day and it got me thinking this is a biblical concept what do I mean by that well look at what last week we studied the four rules of communication but we skipped over verse 28 in Ephesians 4 because it didn't have anything to do with communication but I'm going to bring it up now look at what it says it says let the thief no longer steal that's the put off remember put off be renewed in the thinking of your mind put on that's the process of change let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands that's the put on and here's the be renewed in the thinking of your mind part so that he may have something to share with anyone in need oh the be renewed the be renewed in the thinking of your mind part is this life is not just about me this life is about me meeting my own needs, but also having some to share with someone who's in need. Now, brothers and sisters, this is, I'm going to leave this between you and the Lord, but let me ask you this question. Do you have any strategic margin in your life of time so that when somebody calls you and says, I need help, I need to talk, I need, or when you notice that someone is wandering off that path, that you have some margin to go to them and say, Let's have coffee and talk about this uh, because it looks like you need some help. And the reason, I guess the margin part is, is right, that's obvious, extra, but strategic. What is that? What do I mean by strategic? I mean using it on purpose, right? Using it, having a plan to use it. Uh, if you've ever gone to a tour of a fire station, this isn't just true of firefighters, by the way. Police, you know, law enforcement does this too. But it's extremely marked in the fire department. You go to the fire department and you take a tour, and what do you notice? You notice that, that all of the firefighters' boots are kind of laid out in such a fashion that you can just kind of step into them and pull up the things and put on the suspenders and put on the, you know, jackets right there, helmets, everything's within reach, so that within a few moments, 
that firefighter can be woken up from a dead sleep. I mean, they sleep in the firehouse, typically, if it's a paid firefighter, not a volunteer firefighter, like where I grew up. But even the firefighters where I grew up had a little uh, beeper or some sort of pager that would alert them, there's a fire, you know, you need to go somewhere. Anyway, these guys will... These, these firefighters would be able to be woken up from a dead sleep, run over, slide down the pole, if that's still a thing, I don't know, is that, slide down the pole, step up to their little station, step into their boots, and be on that, and I've been told that here in Delaware, the, um, the goal is, from the moment we get the call to the moment that we're on scene, five minutes. Five minutes. Now that's pretty fast, but that's strategic because fire doesn't stop for time. It just gets bigger and bigger and, you know, seconds can count. Are you being strategic with building some margin into your life so that you can be a servant to others? It's a question. It's something to wrestle with. Notice this. The text also says that we are to be watchful of ourselves, right? When somebody wanders off that path and, that, and they've wandered into dangerous territory themselves, when you go to try to talk to them or rescue them, that could, could got to be wise, it could present temptations to you. It could drag you off the path as well. And so it may be helpful for you to work in numbers, perhaps. I've always found that there's good safety in numbers. But uh, to, to work in such a way to make sure that you yourselves are not being tempted. First Timothy 4.16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching this is Paul talking to Pastor Timothy. Persist in this, for if by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. But you get the idea. We are to be watchful and wise in our own lives. All right. So, we are to be mindful of our mindset, the way we think. We are to be mindful of the configuration of our attitude, or the configuration of our lives. Are we building margin into our lives to be able to help others? Are we approaching, are we on the path ourselves? And then finally, in relationship to other believers, take action. Take action. Look at 6, 2 through 5 of Galatians. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Now, for those of you that are reading out of the ESV, this is a very confusing passage of Scripture because on the one hand it says in verse 2, bear one another's burdens, and then by the time you get to verse 5, it's each one will have to bear his own load. Those are two different words in the Greek. They mean two different things. Let me, let me get to that. First of all, Let's talk about the obligation to restore. The obligation to restore. This word, bear, in bear one another's burdens in verse 2, that verb is in the imperative mood, which means it's a command. It's not a request. It is a command. Jay Adams, one of the founding fathers of the biblical counseling movement that we have today, said this, if a brother becomes so entangled in a trespass that he is unable to extricate himself and is unable to manifest the Spirit's fruit, the Christian who recognizes his condition, and it doesn't mean, it doesn't say only the pastors or the elders of the church, is obligated to restore him. That means it is not optional to do so. It also means 
that one does not wait until asked for help, he offers it. Interesting stuff from J. Adams. So we have an obligation to restore. And Jay kind of mentioned it, but we also, uh, we are to initiate the restoration process. So there's the initiation to restore. I know Matthew 18, if you're familiar with Matthew 18, 18, 15 through 20, it says, if a brother sins against you, you go, you tell that sin between you and the brother alone. But this is a different situation, right? This is, you've noticed a brother has wandered off that path They're no longer walking carefully with the Lord. What does that look like? Many things. Perhaps you've just noticed that the person is speaking very harshly to others here lately, and uh, they're they're having a hard time controlling their tongue, and so you, you come alongside them and make them aware of that and remind them of what the Lord has said. So you initiate. Now, this initiation, I want to be careful here, this initiation to restore really needs to be out of a heart of love. Back to the end of chapter 5, not out of a heart of conceitedness or jealousy or anything like that, but a heart of love. When Jesus uh, came into the city of Jerusalem near the end of his life, he wept over Jerusalem because they failed to understand the goodness of God and walk in his ways. They were corrupt in many ways. In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, Paul felt the pressure of the churches that he was trying to minister to. He loved them and he knew the problems that existed there and he wanted to help. It's out of that kind of motivation that we initiate the restoration process. And then finally, what's the goal of restoration? the goal of restoration. Let's talk about this text just a little bit. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one of us test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. What I think Paul is attempting to tell us here or what I think the way we should understand this here is that we oftentimes in the church, we have a tendency to examine ourselves or better yet, compare ourselves with our neighbor and say, well, I'm better than Joe, so I'm in good shape. And Paul shoots that to pieces and says, no, no, no. Test your work against Jesus and his word. If 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 what you're doing stands up to that test, then you'll have something to boast about. Uh, spoiler alert we're not going to be able to you know the best we can do is try to be Christ-like in our work but we're never going to reach his perfection right then we'll have something to boast about but don't compare yourself with your neighbor that's a useless place to consider or a useless comparison for each one will have to bear his own load what's he talking about there a few things. First of all, what, your goal of restoration is to, is to help that person get back on God's path. Now, can I just say, this is where many, many of us stop today. We stop helping people with restoration when we see that our, our friend, our, our brother or sister in Christ, they were off the path and maybe they had stopped coming to church and they were participating in some sinful activities. We come alongside them, we help, we get them back into church, we get them to repent of that stuff and they're walking on that path again, and then we say, restoration complete. No. 
We want to help them get back on that path. We want to help them to remain on God's path. What does that look like? Well, they're, they're beginning to bear fruit, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, all that stuff. Galatians 5, 23. But really, we'll know the restoration is, is complete when that person is now helping others get back on God's path. The, the imagery that comes to my mind is this. is The, the ship has gone down you're in a lifeboat, right? You're in a lifeboat, and you're the only one in the lifeboat, but this lifeboat can hold many people. And you notice out in the distance there's people splashing around, and the water is cold, and so time is of the essence. And so you paddle your, you've got one paddle, you paddle the life raft over to a person, a, a victim that's in the water, and while you're grabbing them to pull them into the boat, they're also pulling themselves and kicking their feet in the water to get themselves in the boat. Now they're in the boat. Good. They're safe. But now you notice there's many other people splashing, and so you paddle your boat over, and now you're both working to get that per the next person into the boat. So the goal of restoration is to, is to help them to become a fully functioning member of the body of Christ, a living stone who's not on just on God's path and remaining on God's path, but also, who's also... Uh, helping others to get back on God's path. All right. How will you know, how do you know if you're connected at Delaware Bible Church? Here's the answer to the big question. You'll know you're connected at Delaware Bible Church when you're bearing the weight of being connected. This means getting intentional about constructing strategic margin in your life. And I would also say it has something to do with a readiness to restore others. And so let me just ask you, before we get to the application, let me just ask you this question. <clears throat> could you honestly say, this is not something to answer out loud, by the way, could you answer honestly and say that on a routine basis, you feel the burden of others within this body that are perhaps wandering away, perhaps needing some help, perhaps needing some restoration. You feel the weight of that because you're tied in here in meaningful relationships you know others others know you and you're able to minister to them or not and if you don't feel that weight if your mo is to breeze into church take in a sermon and breeze out and there's no real relationship there that means something needs to change in your life so how do we apply this this morning a few things number one is obvious you know if you're going to build some strategic margin in your life then you're going to have to if your life is already full then you're going to have to eliminate some stuff to free up some time so what can that be what could you eliminate from your life to free up more time <clears throat> now this is where i could touch all kinds of third rails right i could just walk around and just touch i just touch all the ouchy stuff i'm going to leave that between you and the lord lest I get run out of church on a rail. But you know, there's things in your life that are soaking up vast amounts of time. I mean, I'll pick on something easy. You know, you're binge-watching the third season of whatever your favorite show is, and that's just consuming hours per night. What is that doing to prepare you to be a better rescuer 
or to help anybody get rescued. It's doing nothing. Secondly, uh, how would you assess your readiness for those to restore those who are stuck in sin? Now, I, I wouldn't, I'm going to guess that many of you would say, I don't know, I, I have no clue how I would help someone who's stuck in sin. Maybe take them out for coffee and confront them a little bit, and that'd be about, after that, I'd be kind of shooting blanks. Here's the good news. Ready for this? You've got pastors. You've got elders. Our job is to equip the saints, that's you, for the work of ministry. So we can plug you in. We can get you signed up to learn how to become, for example, a biblical counselor, or to learn how to study the Bible, or whatever. Um, so if you're ready to make some strides in your readiness to restore others who are stuck in sin, we can help you with that. Just got to ask. And then finally, uh, who do you know that is caught in sin and what are you going to do about it? I'm going to make you a, a, an absolute metaphysically certain promise. I cannot possibly, the three of us, Brad, Aaron, and Scott, the 12 of us elders, we cannot possibly know every detail of what's going on in your lives, but I'm willing to bet that everybody in here has a friend or is tied enough with somebody that they can see when you're wandering off the path or vice versa. When you see that happening, what will you do about it? Let me read the text, just one verse, one more time before we close. This is Paul writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit. This is Holy Scripture given to us by God to instruct us on what is the best way to live this life. A way that's good and healthy for us and glorifying to Him. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Let's practice that. Our great God and Heavenly Father, the love that you have shown us, displayed to us in your Son, Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, in your provision of the Scripture, in your provision of the Holy Spirit residing within us to guide us. Your love for us is absolutely awesome. We exist in a world, Father, where each one of us is prone to wander from your path So, Father, build us, make us into a church that diligently watches over each other. And when we see a brother or sister that is not keeping in step with your spirit, that we would, in tenderness and gentleness, roll up our sleeves, take of our time, expend our effort, using the brains that you've given us and the, the study tools that you have so amply supplied to us, especially those of us that live in this country, that's all of us, to apply our minds and our time and our effort to this project of restoring a brother or sister who has wandered away. Why? Because you tell us that it's good for us and it's glorifying to you to do so. 
So help us to be really, really good at this church at restoration. In Jesus' name, amen.